0: It's not over yet. We haven't actually tried. You know, this is our big moment of of really turning this around and it comes back to mitigation and that's what we've got to really focus on. Welcome to 100 Climate Conversations
1: and thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which we are recording today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We respect their elders, past, present and recognise their continuous connection to country. Now today is number 83 of 100, not ranked in any particular order. These conversations are happening every Friday and the series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, which is of course climate change. We are recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Now, before it was home to the museum, this building was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system. Uh, That extended through into the 1960s. And In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus now towards the innovations away from coal and to the net zero revolution. My name's Nate Byrne. Uh, I am a meteorologist, oceanographer, uh, science communicator, former naval officer, and current ABC News Breakfast weather presenter. Ove Her Goldberg is the chief scientist of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation and professor of marine studies at the University of Queensland. Ove spent four decades studying how ocean warming and acidification threaten marine ecosystems. He authored a landmark 1999 research paper predicting the loss of coral reefs globally by 2050, which is just around the corner. <laughs> Since then, he has advocated for 50 global conservation areas to ensure the future of coral on our planet. His advocacy work also includes contributing to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We are so thrilled to have over with us this morning. Please make him feel very welcome. um You have been involved over a long career with the Great Barrier Reef. We are going to talk about it, but I wonder where did that
0: that passion, that drive, first begin? I suppose there's a picture that was taken of me on a reef in 1969, when humans were walking on the moon. I was more fascinated by the reef. I mean, it looked great, and they had the colour print in the in the newspapers and so on of the of the, uh, the the moon event. But for me, it's hard to understand why. But I just fell in love with the sort of an ecosystem. In fact, all marine ecosystems. But of course, the creme de la creme, of course, is the Great Barrier Reef and and coral reefs in general. And that then, I, I think, just led to you know. I Studied corals for my PhD, and the whole guise was to get as much diving done with, oh, well, other people paid for it. But then I didn't know about it. But when I started to do my PhD research uh, in the early uh, 1980s, uh, uh, corals were starting to die. They were starting to change. And of course, at first, we were very careful to say whether or not it's climate or whatever. But it's become extremely clear, and, and the events of, of, of you know, the last five years have been truly shocking. And we've gone from having a hesitancy about this, but this is now the number one threat to the Great Barrier Reef. In fact, coral reefs everywhere. I wonder, actually, if it would be worth here
1: explaining just actually what is coral? I mean, everybody knows what coral looks like.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And I guess part of that, and it will probably fall out in your answer, why are coral reefs important?
0: So Mm. what are they? Well, I think you know, in their basic element, there's there's a plant that lives inside the tissue of an anemone-like creature, a simple animal, that together are able to precipitate calcium carbonate and build structures you can see from outer space. Animal, plant, rock, mineral, all of those things in one. And it's been around for several hundred million years. So it's a really good plan. And of course, when you look at where coral reefs grow, it's this sort of pristine, low-nutrient waters, and it's that symbiosis between these tiny plants that make corals brown uh, and these polyp-like organisms uh, that is the magic of a coral reef. Without it, they don't exist. The reef doesn't exist. And why are reefs important? Well, how much time do you have?
1: Well, yeah. I, well, okay. Um, OK. OK, well, we'll start with the headline. OK, yeah, yeah. Half Go a ahead. million
0: people derive benefits from reefs on a daily basis. That's food, income, cultural services, and so on. Mm. So they're important from just that element. But they also protect coastlines, break the the energy of waves coming in. So they're really important in, um, you know, allowing humans to live comfortably along quiet coastlines that are not being pounded. But of course, that's changing. We can talk about that in a while. But, you know, there's those elements that you just can't argue against. And then you've got the million species, many of which are not known to science. We just know that we're discovering species at a certain rate. And, of course, it's, it's, it's tailing off a little bit, but we still have a lot of work to be done. Uh, so you look at that and you look at, you know, 25% of all fish species live on coral reefs. Now, you might think, OK, that's, uh, that must be about 30% of the planet's surface. It's less than 1%. So there's this sort of magic about the whole thing and, of course, the importance culturally to first Australians, people across the planet, um, and and, and just the pure beauty. Someone said the other day that I I concentrate too much on defining it in terms of economic terms. Uh, What about the beauty? And and there's a really good argument there, like my favourite fish is the orange-spotted filefish. And it's a bit like one of Picasso's paintings. If you lose the reef, you lose this fish in the same way you would if you set fire to, a, to an impressionist painting. So there's something there that you have to factor in. And that's they're basically invaluable. Mm. And you can't do that without them.
1: I thought for half a second there you are going to say that the fish looked like a Picasso.
0: <laughs> well, it, it does. Well, it's, uh, it's green with orange dots on it, a beautiful little beak. They're monogamous. They live together in, in, in coral. They eat coral. They have their babies that, that sort of uh, go up to the plankton from coral. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a unique partnership. Yeah, so beat that. Yeah,
1: okay. Um, (laughs) Well, well, actually, I will. I'll go to something even more impressive and your 1999 paper, actually. Mm. I'm a forecaster. I think about what's going to happen in the weather maybe a a week in advance. Mm. Um, But here, we're talking a quarter of a century ago. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: You were making... That is well beyond any of my abilities as a forecaster, so I am very much in awe. But what... What did
0: you find back then? To give a bit of context to this, I had been working on the impacts of of temperature on coral reefs because we had a suspicion that temperature was behind the the problem. It turns out it's a pretty simple relationship, and that is that if you heat corals up by a couple of degrees uh, for a few weeks, you get to a point where the symbiosis falls apart and and they they bleach and die. You can do experiments in the lab uh, to, to show this, right? But the real clincher was, of course, the satellites came online that could measure the skin temperature of the ocean. And those provided us the ability to predict what was going to happen to a patch of reef if it it was exposed to this amount. The other part of that, though, was that once we had that mechanism between temperature and coral bleaching, was we could also look into the future. And and at the time I started to do this work, there were sort of the first climate models or, or really reliable climate models were coming through. And they were saying, "Look, there's a baseline temperature change that we predict is going to happen." And so, if you then draw the the, the threshold at which bad things happen to corals, it turns out that those two curves—the background temperature and what corals can sustain—it uh, was reached around mid-century. And I was a young academic. I we were living in the Blue Mountains. I was going to the University of, of Sydney, and. Um, when I first did the calculation, I was like, oh, no, I've obviously made a mistake. Go back, recalculate data. I had very great collaborators in Europe uh, giving me really good data uh, on the ocean temperature. But whatever you did, it still came out with this, you will have more than one bleaching event a year by 2050. Now, a lot of these corals and things need a good 20 years to recover from a bleaching event, so you can't hit them every year and expect that they're going to survive. So... Mm. And that then triggered sort of a seismic blast because it was um, many scientists disputed it. They said, no, it can't be like that. There's no way this would be be the case. And so I ended up, in a way, debating my colleagues, which is really healthy, but that spread into wider society. And so down the line I start to get death threats and other bits and pieces going on, Mm. uh, which were pretty unpleasant but, you know, I'm a stubborn person. So at the time, you
1: were essentially just told off but there was confusion and some people didn't believe you. How does it sit now, though, that we're yeah. a quarter of a century later?
0: Well, I think one of the most stunning things is that however horrendous those initial predictions were or projections were, mm. everything's happening faster than we anticipated. And so in, you know, just if you go back this five years where you have sort of, you know, multiple bleaching events across the planet, that sort of was something that might have happened in 2040 and so on. I mean, I I haven't gone back and looked at the exact relationships, but it's certainly, it's in our face much sooner than I think we expected. And of course, that comes with all the politics. I mean, I had wonderful exchanges with politicians, you know, who just thought it was bunkum. You know, and that was a convenient place to put it. But unfortunately, it's borne out that it's much more serious than we thought. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, we're also learning enormous amounts of great work done across the field now where, you know, not only do the corals get impacted, of course, it's the fish that live in the corals. It's, it's the, you know, every part of the reef, the processes of, of biomineralization, the formation of skeleton, all this stuff is now being affected and it doesn't look good. Uh, because we've we 've even gone to the point where we 've built mesocosms, which are these little well they 're not little they 're the size of a jacuzzi uh, on heron island and and uh, where our team has been able to show that you know there 's a lot more subtle things going on. In fact, I should mention that uh, my wife led those experiments, so it was a bit of a family business. This was done uh, some years ago where if you go out into nature and you try to measure the impact of acidification as well as temperature, you sort of have to wait till the future comes before you actually can start to look at it. So what Sophie did was to create these mesocosms, her little worlds, in which she would manipulate the temperature and manipulate um, the acidity and create, you know, the ocean of 2050 if you had high CO2 or not. Low CO2, and all those combinations. And what she found was that yes, coral bleaching is important, but there are huge amounts of things going like sponges that bore into the skeletons of corals are in some sort of stasis normally, right? These particular type of sponge, it, it destroys the skeletons of corals, but it's not too much, so it's in this sort of balance. But once you get to a world where it's more acidic, those sponges can consume briefs at a rate which has been unmatched before. So that is a looking at getting that insight from the world and understanding the consequences of changing CO2 and thereby temperature and acidity and what that means in terms of that. And so those papers uh, went, or those studies went for, um, you know, 18 months, quite long periods of time, uh, and then yielded a lot of information. You know, things like we had students working on sea cucumbers and they also, uh, you know, become much more effective at chewing through gravel when it's more acidic and so on. So it's about trying to get an idea of that world. You'll, you'll never know whether that exactly, that thing was going to, 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 to occur. But what we did know then was that ocean acidification uh, was a really serious impact and it was synergistic with temperature. So you've got you know, high temperatures, you've got more acidic oceans and you've got a much greater impact on, on the reef system. So not just about corals and bleaching, it's a lot more things that are involved and almost everything, which is, I think is the signature of climate change. You know, everywhere you look, it's everything that's changing.
1: as the inaugural director of the Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland, are you well, were involved with a massive project, the 50 Reefs project uh, in association with the
0: Ocean Agency. What did that actually entail? Well, the 50 Reef project was the idea that um, things are happening so fast at a global scale to coral reefs that we need a better baseline than the one we've had in the past because people have been going out and making measurements on their reef, uh, not in consistent ways where you could get a really good feeling for how fast things are, are changing. And so we started this with the very generous help of uh, a number of philanthropists to take a look at 24 countries across the planet, to look at their four-reef environments and, and make massive amounts of photographic evidence of, of, of these things and then use AI, and this is you know something we did sort of five years ago, was to use AI to then quickly go through those and get an idea about how much coral what's growing on reefs and so on, and then start to fill in as we, uh, you know, as we got to the completion of, of certain areas. We, we would start and have a measurement. we go back. So we've gone back to the Maldives, for example. We've gone back to the Great Barrier Reef. And the idea is to get that picture of 10 years of global change, what actually happened, and is it as robust as we think? And then the second spin-off of that was that we... Um, also did a study where we looked at how, how exposed coral reefs were to climate change with the idea that one of the best ways of dealing with climate change was to now, because things are happening so quickly, is to focus in on a significant portion of the world's coral reefs that are less exposed to climate change than the average with the idea that we can protect these reef systems from, from, from other changes like um, you know, pollution and overfishing and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But we can get to a point where we understand these places, we protect them, and they become the, the source of baby corals for the future and so on. As we are mitigating heavily uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases, none of this works unless you flatten the curve of emissions and bring it really, you know, the the whole system to zero carbon as quickly as possible. Mm. And I say quickly as possible because we've sort of locked in on, oh, 2050, that's when we need to worry about it. Well, no, every little piece of CO2 coming from fossil fuels is deadly at a vast scale. And so I think that, that was an interesting project to do because we suddenly saw reefs in 24 countries and we were able to then identify these... Uh, low, uh, low vulnerability sites, and we've now got a project with uh, seven countries that have 70% of the low exposed coral reefs, uh, which we're now working with under a Global uh, Environment Facilities Grant, which is a UN grant bringing everybody to the table to, to, to find the answers to some of these really important questions. Mm. And that was fantastic. I mean, that sort of fulfilled my boyhood, childhood dream thing of diving a lot, right? <laughs> But the next thing we did was to then, with this partnership, start to derive, you know, uh, I, I guess through those seven nations to really sort of start to, to, to push hard on solutions and, and, and have a difference while we're also dealing with the emission problem. And, of course, being an ocean scientist as well, I was very interested in a project uh, which the World Resource Institute and a, and a range of other organisations have been doing, in fact, uh, 20 you know, leaders uh, of countries from Indonesia to Australia and so on in trying to see the ocean not as a victim, which we're always saying the ocean, so the coral reefs are dying, it's all terrible, but to, to see if the ocean was a source of opportunity for solutions. And that's turned out to be really interesting. So we, we got together a large number of experts from Shipping to energy to biology and so on, and got them to think about their field and, and whether or not they could change things at a reasonable cost and get those advantages of the ocean acting to, as a solution. And we did this in 2019, just prior to COVID. Uh, and, 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 the, and what we did there was to look at things like um, offshore renewable energy. Was that uh, was that a go? Was it, was it something that's going to fill that in? Uh, transport, you know, a huge amount of, of emissions come from us sending stuff to each other across the planet and, and so on and, and, and the, the cost of transport. Um, things like blue carbon, where we can lock, uh, you know, carbon into the soils of ecosystems such as mangroves and seagrasses and so on. Um, turns out there's a really interesting area of food, that if you eat protein from the sea, obviously sustainably, it costs a lot less in emissions per kilo of protein than you know, feeding a cow or a, a steer and, and going through that process. So there was that. And then there was also the idea that, which has been waning in popularity and back and forth, which is whether you can actually squirt CO2 into the deep parts of the ocean mm. and store it down there. But the risk, for example, of that particular strategy is that we don't really know whether that CO2 will remain there. And the last thing we want is it to burp and suddenly introduce uh, that CO2 all at once, which may be devastating. But then there are others that are, you know, like um, the offshore renewable energy area. So we're now redoing this report, you know, after COVID interrupted and so on and so forth. But now we're doing that report um, again, with uh, the same groups of, of professionals that have come round the table and some new ones. And there's some good news there in that we're... That, ..that if you take technology off the shelf and apply it, you don't have to invent anything new, and so it's the it's feasible and ready-to-go things. You can do a lot of work in terms of closing the emission gap between the, the emission, emission reduction we need to achieve um, versus... Uh, what we're doing. And at the moment, all the efforts globally tell us that we're not doing enough because, at the moment, emissions are going to keep on going up if we have the current set of policies and everyone does what they said they were going to do at these various different meetings. We still go to three degrees Celsius, which means that would be absolutely horrifying in terms of an outcome.
1: You identified earlier five areas. Uh, let's, let's talk about solutions-based stuff and, and what we're doing. Uh,
0: ocean-based renewable energy. In the report that we're putting together now, not to sort of anticipate it, and of course it's got to go through a review, is that the ambition and plans for putting in uh, solar wind on, on the ocean have doubled, if not trebled. So there is that positive link. Other Other areas Curiously, not curiously, but maybe there are reasons for it in terms of acceptability. But the idea of of switching to ocean-based protein with better design of fisheries and so on hasn't made a lot of progress. So we know there are areas that need investment and and need to be sort of examined quite closely. Other ones that are, you know, looking like they're going to exceed the targets they're setting for themselves. You know, um, ocean transport, you know, the idea of of alternative fuels to power these crafts, so you've got solar powered, essentially transport ships, that also looks like it's going to be very real in terms of that. But others such as, you um, know, in our current report, it's, it, it has a section on removing uh, fossil fuels. Um, that appears to be very much debated about whether that's know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and so on and you've got to be careful of things like um, double counting where you you know move the fossil fuels out but they move somewhere else and 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 so you've got a win in one area but a a loss in another Mm. so all those sorts of subtleties that need to be sort of worked through but I think you know there are seven areas which show a lot of hope probably four of those are you know could be done, I think, successfully and, and, and have a good growth by the time we do this type of study again in maybe four years' time. Mm. So, I mean, I, yeah, that, that was a big sort of optimistic moment with this next phase of this project was that actually when you do the systematic review, you do find out that there are technologies that can, at scale, uh, you know, bring emissions down at the speed they need to be. And literally right now. They're available. Yep. We can do stuff today. Yeah. We've got in this latest report the idea of mature technologies versus early adoption and then things that may need a lot more work. And you've got quite a few mature ready to go. That's technology that exists, put it into play. Now then it becomes this issue of how do you get governments, the leadership industry to take up these opportunities? And the idea of stimulation of particular industries and so on uh, is really important here. Mm. You know, unless you m- help the transition from coal and gas, then it probably won't happen. You've got to somehow leverage off. And then, and then of course, avoiding that problem of you know, you know, reducing impact one place and then having it pop up somewhere else.
1: You did mention that. Uh while doing all of your incredibly important work, and I'm going to take you back to the 50 Reefs project, uh, that you did get to dive a lot. So, is that how you chose the 50 Reefs, Ove? Or was there something else in that original work there that, that helped select those 50? Because there are hundreds, thousands of coral reefs yeah.
0: to choose from. Must have been. Yeah, a we lot tried more to do as much as we could do for the budget that we had. Mm. Uh, and so it was to make sure that we had coverage in the Car- Caribbean, which is a, a, one of the big realms of coral reef ecosystems, um, with sites in the Pacific, uh, you know, and, and um, West, Western Indian Ocean and, and so on. We did our best within that budget to, to, to get a whole bunch of sites down. And, and, and we took a million photographs. Very proud of that. Yeah which, of course, are there as a future resource because as technologies increase, uh, uh, improve, we can get to a point where we should be able to re-examine those things as a sort of living record. And so it's now 10 years since we began the last ones, and so we're going back to those sites. Not to say perfect score for, you know, covering every part of it, but having a very significant, this is the largest survey of coral reefs done with this type of technology. Um, and so even though it's, it's, it's not the best design, perhaps, it's a lot better than what we had. Mm. And the idea is we need to, to do this. And at the moment we're trying to look for support to, to get that second set of expeditions off so we can really start to say, the last 10 years we saw, you know, six or seven huge global events happen. Are corals going backwards or are they somehow, you know, beating the odds. But I guess you're right that you want
1: a really good baseline and you don't want to just pick all the corals that are doing the best or all the ones yeah, that are definitely right. doing the worst. Um, but it must be a difficult task anyway because these are biological things that naturally yeah. do change and shift in time. Yeah. How, how do you make sure that between one survey and the next that there is consistency?
0: Yeah, so it's done in every site that we visited. We did the fore reef, the side areas of the reef, and the back back areas of the reef. Mm. Uh, We had a protocol that that measured two kilometres per transect, if you like, of photographs, and then we analysed that amount. So that was uh, thousands of photographs per site and then multiple sites and then this sort of fore reef, back reef and side reef and so on. So there's an attempt to do it but again this is you know this is boats working more or less full time for 2 years. We're also at the same time did some interesting work on the mesophotic reefs which is where coral reefs are growing at the limit of their their ability to survive in uh, light levels and finding out that there's huge amounts of biodiversity there which you know literally uncharted you know, on our first uh, use of a bunch of robots and deep divers and so on, there's sort of like three new species of coral for a particular area, a new species of pygmy seahorse. This biodiversity is a sort of akin to almost what, you know, Darwin saw when he first saw reefs uh, mm-hmm. on, on the Voyage of the Beagle. And so that was really exciting. Of course, it just highlighted the problem. It's like, well, yes, this, when you talk about those coral reefs and that less than 1%, of the Earth's surface that's sort of covering it, it is even more diverse than we thought. It's even more valuable in terms of the genetic uh, heritage that it bequests humans. Mm. You know, it's, yeah, I sound like a, I'm trying to sell you something, but I'm not. I'm buying.
1: It's OK, <laughs> okay. I'm buying. Good. Um, I, I, you know, it, How many? <laughs> oh, I, All of them. I'll take the lot. Good. Um, it is incredible that, that there is life and not just a little bit but an entire world of life on the edge of what life can deal with yep. and if we are warming things up so that that edge shrinks a little, we're losing entire worlds.
0: We made that argument, I think. It, it is a terrible thing that's happening so I think we now need to, this is, would be my, you know, it, it's to go beyond that now. Yeah to say, yes, enormous amounts of biodiversity with climate change is under threat. It's that simple calculation of whether it's worth intervening or not. And, of course, it just becomes an overpowering you know, argument to say there's so much value here that we need to now get on with the solutions. And that's where the uh, Coral Reef Rescue Initiative, that's that project that, that um, is in partnership with the seven countries who depend on coral reefs. And our big focus is how can we make them as resilient to climate that's going to in, in inevitably affect them? And how do we protect people, nature, and businesses so that you've got that stability ongoing? Mm. You know, unfortunately, growing corals really can't be done at scale, or at least I think it's going to be really difficult to, to do it at scale and cost estimates of of you know restoring one hectare of coral reef ranges from sort of several hundred thousand dollars to as much as a million. And so you've you've got that problem that yes, it sounds good and, and it's a good thing to do. And the other thing of course is you grow the corals back in the place where they just got nailed by a thermal stress event. Yeah, you haven't solved the problem. You just delayed it a little bit and then it fell over. And I and I don't want to say this with disrespect to all the fantastic people that have been putting their heart and soul into restoring reefs. But I think we have to be totally practical now. You know, climate change is here. We need to find those solutions and put them into play and and get this job done. And I've gone from 10 years ago sort of suffering a little bit from depression uh, to then waking up recently and going, It's not over yet. We haven't actually tried. This is our big moment of of really turning this around, and it comes back to mitigation, and that's what we've got to really focus on. So earlier this month, in August
1: 2023, I should say, UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, deferred the vote to decide on whether or not to add the Great Barrier Reef as in danger. Mm. Some might think, oh, thank goodness, but others,
0: maybe less so. What's your take? Well... The existence of this list means that you've got a bit of a, a, a way of prodding um, governments to, to make the right decisions. So in our case, if the Great Barrier Reef is, you know, potentially going onto that list, then, of course, you, you're hoping to see a lot more sort of activity and so on. That's what I believe 10 years ago. Because if leave it in place, you know, that that's a tool that can be used to help you know, move politics along uh, and 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 get people to realise. Um, but more recently, we've had a number of what are they called outlook reports from the Great Barrier Reef, which are part of, a you know, these legislated sort of reports that have to be now done on the Great Barrier Reef, have in many cases gone from poor to very poor and that type of language. And so at the same time, uh, as this was last being discussed, was that um, we had two massive bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef that killed an enormous amount of coral, uh, back-to-back bleaching events and so on. And so I've changed my mind into saying now, well, you know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I think it's really misleading now to say that it's not, in, it's not, in, it's not on the endangered list. So therefore, just as you said, you know, now we can sit back. No, that's the opposite. And so I think we need to, to face up to reality. It's not only Australia. It's all coral reefs around the world. Mm. It's, it's, it's something we need to, to recognise as a planetary you know, society is that this is a problem that we are facing. It needs to get the attention of everybody. There are no winners if we don't. Mm. I think the other problem
1: for reefs is often when they do recover you get some, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you can have quick recovery, but often with kind of a coral that isn't the one you really
0: want. Yeah, I like to refer to this as, you know, you you can have a forest, right, Uh, and and in the case of of, uh, seeing it come back and so on, often it's like you're planting a radiata pine forest, diversity is low, it doesn't have many, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a fairly fragile system versus an old-growth forest equivalent of coral reefs where you've got millions of species and you've got all this sort of checks and balances and, and that stability. And so what we're seeing more and more is we're getting lots of radiata pine forest equivalents and less and less of the old-growth systems that are so important mm. to, you know, biodiversity and reef benefits and all the, those sort of things all right, let's news you can use
1: this. What do you want to see happen next couple of years? What do we need to do to protect the reefs?
0: Well, I think we've got to do a couple of things. I think we've got to address mitigation far more aggressively than we have, and that's a given. So we've looked at a whole range of different possibilities recently with an injection of funding from the federal government, Uh, and that was to sort of take a look at some of the potential technologies. Everyone's talking about, you know, super corals and, and whether we could get them out onto reefs and then we'd solve the problem by having this coral that would be robust against temperature change and all of that. That's one thing to say it. It's another to do it. And so this this funding was out there to literally do what a lot of industries do when they want to solve a problem and that is innovate, test, fail fast, re-innovate and keep going. And and that's something I think we'll, we'll you know... Uh, we need to do. And and, and so what we've done there is in in this sort of four or five-year period, we've tested a whole bunch of ideas and and, and found out the ones that work and the ones that don't, the ones that come with problems about feasibility or socioeconomic acceptability and so on. So we've done that. But now we've got to get over and say, okay, well, what have we got in the arsenal to help reefs adapt to changing climate? As we say, we've got to have this downward trend as quickly as possible Mm but how, what are the technology things? And so that's one of the reasons why I've been investing a lot of time and energy in the Coral Reef Rescue Initiative, which is about identifying the low-exposure reef systems and putting our heart and soul in protecting them. You know, that to me is important. Now, I might be biased, but, I'm, you know, when you look at the options available, that makes a lot of sense. It's scalable. You're not trying to keep an aquarium facility going. You're essentially maintaining a reef system as best you can so that it becomes the sort of parent generation to the recovery. So that's the two things that I think are important. And then I think with education, I mean, the, the, things like this exhibit here at the Powerhouse Museum, the idea that there was a day when people that told us the weather didn't believe in climate change.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Now they have to step around typhoons and cyclones. It's a funny old world, isn't it? I think we're a really interesting species. And in that, you know, if you look at what we've, we've got a monumentally big problem to solve, but we have this, this explosion of technology from AI to clever materials to this, that and the other, I think we're going to solve it. But as humans, you know, not to quote this as being what they always do, but it's like we always leave things until the last moment, the razor edge. And then we have the big innovation event, and it's all a bit too fast, and we get a bit of pain from it. But it'd be great if we could get to a point where we didn't have to go through the pain that we were shifting and understanding, and at a faster and more responsible time frame. Please join me a round of applause over Goldberg.
1: To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and your podcatchers of choice. To visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or to join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. Records of the conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations here in the powerhouse collection which has over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse on Twitter and at Powerhouse
0: Museum on Instagram and Facebook.